I'd like to first acknowledge how grateful Teresa and I are for being here, the love that has been demonstrated and the kindness that's been shown is, is overwhelming. We do greatly appreciate that. As we were headed back to the hotel yesterday after morning services, Teresa said, I hope that Northside is as loving as Central is. And I said, well, I think we are. And, uh, and that's a lot to, to know that you all are caring and concerned and, and desire to make others feel welcome, but desire also to share the gospel, to have this meeting, to have the word preached so that others may be able to hear that message. And I'm grateful to be able to come here and speak to you on this topic, the mountain of blessings. Tonight's lesson is, blessed are those who imitate God. This is Matthew chapter 5 and verses 7 and 8. Over the years, I've seen a lot of documentaries on mountain climbing. I'm a big documentary guy. I love watching documentaries. Doesn't matter, whatever it is, it's just like how they can tuna, I'll watch it. I don't, you know, it's like figuring something out. Lately, I've been watching these documentaries on mountain climbing. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this one, but there is a documentary out there called Free Solo. Free Solo is about an individual who climbed the El Capitan in Yosemite without any ropes. That's why it's called Free Solo. Just his hands, powder, shoes, just shimmied up this thing. It's impressive when you think about all that goes into it, though. This isn't something that happens overnight. And anybody that's going to be out there climbing some mountain, it's going to take a lot of time, preparation. This, this man, he kept wanting to do it, but kept putting it off while he was climbing other mountains because he just knew how difficult it was going to be. You look at the preparation, the effort that goes into this, the research, the equipment. He didn't just go out and free soul of the mountain. He first did his path with rope. He would go up and he would go with a buddy and they had rope and he figured out the way and because you know you go up there and just give it one shot and you don't make that jump and now well, that's just one shot so he did the path using rope once he had it figured out he said okay i know i can go here without any rope it was an astonishing feat to see this guy climb this thing if you've ever seen it you know i know you're like what a foolish man what's he doing that for but to him it was important you figure the time that went into it the hours the days the months the years now it's not something i would do i wouldn't I have no desire to go climb up the face of el capitan without well with rope i wouldn't climb it so <laughs> that's just not my thing but i suppose that to him the reward that followed that climb was well worth it one is the accomplishment right he, to be able to say that he is the first man to ever do this and then secondly, the view must be spectacular. You, you can go up there and look anyway, but I think the view takes on something different after you've climbed the face of this mountain and you're looking over the edge as compared to just going to the top of the mountain and looking over the edge. And as you're climbing, what is the view as you're climbing? You're seeing things that the normal person won't see. In the first four Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, we look at what could be referred to as preparatory in nature. The idea that we're being prepared for something. 
And as I've suggested that what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a path to discipleship. And the first four Beatitudes deal with moving in the direction of becoming a disciple of his. We've recognized our impoverished spiritual state due to our sin. We're poor in spirit. We've mourned over that sinful state. We've humbled ourselves before God, meek. And we've fervently committed to seeking out his righteousness. Verse 6, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And God promises us that we are blessed for choosing this path. That this is indicative. When you, when you go back and you look in the Greek, we have this, this mood that's an indicative mood. And, and what it says is that this is the outcome of this. It's indicative of it. It's a characteristic of it. And as you go down through these, they are indicative. That if you do this, this is a guaranteed outcome. And I want to reiterate that. I want us to understand that. That if we do these things, if we follow this path... This is a guaranteed outcome for us. We're not wishful thinking, pie in the sky, hoping that maybe we'll get to heaven. Maybe we'll be comforted. Maybe heaven will be ours. He's not saying that. He's giving them an absolute that if they will choose the path of being one of his disciples, they can be sure of these things that come along with that. God promises them that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He promises them that they will be comforted. He promises them that they'll be able to enjoy all that God has to offer them and that they will be satisfied. So as we continue this journey up God's mountains of blessing, we're at a point of discipleship now. Verse 4 is this transitionary point. The first four can be that which deals between us and God, our relationship, coming to him. Directly correlating between us finding ourselves in a sinful state and then turning to God to have that taken care of. The next four Beatitudes deal with what we do after that point. Now, again, this is not a blanket, all-in-all list of everything that God wants us to be as a disciple. He doesn't lay out the plan of salvation, as I said yesterday. But he's giving us an, an overview of what it would take and what God offers us if we choose to become one of his disciples. And it is a mountain of blessings. So Matthew chapter 5 and verses 7 through 8, Jesus states that the one that if you choose to be one of his disciples... To be approved of God, then you need to imitate his mercy and his purity. You see, when you, when you understand how this is unfolding, imitating God's mercy and purity does not come about until you've received God's mercy. So we're, we've gone from this recognizing our sinful state, mourning over that state, humbling ourselves, and thirsting, hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness, to now where... We are to be merciful so that we might receive mercy and that we need to be pure in heart. So these are things that have transpired now that we've made this decision. We placed ourselves into God's hands when we humbled ourselves, accepted what he had to offer us. And look where we stand now. One of the beautiful things about this is when you consider how he describes where you were, And where you've come to because you've made this decision. We've gone from being spiritually impoverished, mourning over our sin, to receiving God's mercy when we humbled ourselves before him as we hungered and thirst for his righteousness. So in this first point, we're going to consider what it means to be blessed of God in verses 7 and 8. 
And we're combining the two together. So to be blessed of God, we must be merciful, having a heart set on God's holiness. So it says over here in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now remember, when he says theirs or they, in that second part, he's saying they and only they. This, this doesn't apply to anyone else. Those who choose to be a disciple, this is that mountain of blessings for us. Because they and only they are going to receive this. If we choose not to be a disciple, we should not expect for God to bestow upon us the blessings that belong to those that he approves of. The disciple has not crossed over into the kingdom of God until he commits himself humbly to God and hungers and thirsts for his righteousness. Now that you've done that, God says, I've shown you mercy, now you be merciful. So we're taking on a new character, right? And that's what discipleship involves. We are new creatures, born again. So we move out of a place where we couldn't care less about others to where now we need to consider being merciful to others so that we can continue to receive God's mercy. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, we're told that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. See, that's what God's mercy did for us. Because we were willing to mourn over our sin and we were willing to humble ourselves and we were seeking after his righteousness in obedience to the gospel, we were transferred out of that realm of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, we're told, therefore, to be imitators of God as beloved children. That's why when we get to this part, we're looking at now that we've become a disciple, I need to set my mind on imitating the one who brought me out of that impoverished spiritual state. I want to imitate that one. I want to be as close to God as I can. And so I don't walk in darkness. I am now a child of light. I was formerly a child of darkness, Paul says in Ephesians 5. I was formerly a child of darkness, but now we are children of light. Walk as children of light. We're to be imitators of God. Now, I want you to listen to this word, the definition for this word merciful, because sometimes when we hear this word I'm going to share with you, we don't take it too kindly. But in fact, if you realize what is being said, you can appreciate it. Vines states that mercy or being merciful is the outward manifestation of pity. That's the word we don't like to hear. Now, Mr. T used to say, I pity the fool. Remember him? I pity the fool. We don't like people. Don't, don't pity me. Don't have pity for me. Lord Jesus, pity me. I need your pity. And this is why. Because mercy also assumes the need on the part of him who receives it. I need pity. But also the resources adequate to meet that need. So this mercy is where God looks at us and he knows we need something that he, can, that he can adequately meet. And if you go back to the fact that we're supposed to be poor in spirit and mourn over that, what we're in need of is forgiveness of our sins so we can move away from that condition. 
And the only one who has what's adequate to fulfill that need is God. Remember when it comes to this idea of me removing myself from mourning, I can't do that. All I can do is get myself to a place of mourning over my sinful state. That's how, that's where I got myself. I can't get myself out of it. Only Christ can. So in God, we find a combination of both mercy and grace. We find a combination of mercy and grace. Mercy is needed because of the pain, the misery, the distress of sin. Blessed are those who mourn. Grace always deals with sin and the guilt itself of that sin. But what we find in the scriptures is that grace always comes before God's mercy. In fact, when you look at how Paul would greet Timothy, he always begins it with the grace first. First Timothy in chapter one and verse two to Timothy, my beloved child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God is a God of grace. And because he's a God of grace, he is merciful to us. He extends mercy to us. He has what's necessary to take care of the needs that we have. Forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 is another good example of this mercy or grace and mercy. Hebrews chapter 4 down in verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So because we have chosen to recognize our sinful state, mourn over our sinful state, humble ourselves before God, hunger and thirst for righteousness, in his grace he extends to us his mercy which can adequately meet the need of our soul. And that mercy is directly connected to God's love and forgiveness. God took pity upon us. They didn't owe us anything. We're the ones that chose the path that we chose. Either willfully or ignorantly, it matters not. It's the path that we've chosen. And taking pity upon us, he says, I want to fix for you what you can't fix for yourself. I want you to spend eternity with me. And so I'm going to send my son as a sacrifice for you. Having received God's mercy, then we are being called to be merciful imitators of God. And why would we not do that? It would seem odd to me that if someone was generous to you, that you became a selfish person. You know, we train our children to imitate us and God. Right? We're trying to show them. I'm a generous person. I I pray my child grows up to be a generous person. I'm a loving person. I pray they grow up to be. We show them acts of love, acts of kindness. Right? It's disappointing when the child grows up and they're not anything like you in those areas. Like, what? Remember all the stuff I used to give you and the, the kind acts and all the. Remember when you used to complain about not having money for lunch because we put that into the contribution plate when it went by? How's your contribution going, child of mine? Are you contributing the way that you should? You see, we would be taken aback by that. I didn't teach you to be like this. God says, I showed you my mercy. And I expect you to be merciful. 
I think one of the great examples of that is when we look in the parables of Jesus over in Matthew chapter 18, 23 through 35. Now, we're not going to read through the whole thing. You can write that down. Write that down. But you remember the, the man that owns his master all this money and he comes to him. It's something in, in, in American dollars in our day, if we're taking it from a, a Jewish perspective, it's something like $10 million he owes him. And he's begging him. He said, throw him into prison. Well, he ain't going to pay it off in prison. And he's begging him about his family. No, give me some time. And his master took pity upon him. Pity. And he forgave him of his debt. You remember what that man went and did? He went out and grabbed somebody who owes him a hundred days wage. A denarii. It was a hundred of them. And a denarii is equal to one day's wage. And I always love how Jesus presents these things in, in, in this, this broad, just extreme scenario. But the extreme scenario, hyperbole maybe, is to demonstrate something. This guy owed a debt he could never repay. Ten million dollars in our time. He could never repay and he was forgiven. This guy just owed a hundred days of labor and if given some time, he could have repaid it, but he wouldn't take it. Grabs him by the throat, but throw him into prison. And then what does the master do? He goes and he takes that guy and he throws him into prison. And I forgave you. And what's the point? I showed you mercy. Why didn't you show mercy? And so when you look over at the beatitude, the mountain of blessing, if we're to receive these blessings from God, he's saying, I've shown you mercy. Now you be merciful to others in return. That's the walk of a disciple, to be a, a merciful person, to look at someone's need and to see that you have within you an ability to help that person. And if you don't, to find somebody who can, to be prepared to show mercy. On top of that, he tells us that we need to be pure in heart. And when you consider that these two go together, the purity of heart is a result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You come to a place of a pure heart and you don't have a pure heart until you are a disciple of Christ. You will not be merciful until you have received mercy. So we're at a place of being a disciple. And God says he will continue to show mercy to you. And so now he tells us that we need to be those who have pure heart. Blessed, verse 8, Matthew 5, or the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure is a result of what's taken place previously as you were moving towards God to be one of his disciples. It's the idea of being clean and free from adulterating matter or moral guilt to be pure. And the only way we come to that place is if we've been washed in the blood of Christ. So we are now at a place of discipleship. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if we have this hope and we become a disciple and we have the hope of this mountain of blessings that God has promised to us, then we're going to continually to seek being pure, being what God calls his disciples to be being pure of heart the cardia which is the word heart here can stand for the man's entire mental and moral activity what you think and what you do word and deed so we're seeking to be a people 
that in word and deed, being that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, will live that out in pureness. Seeking to always do the right thing in the right way at the right time. Vine says that figuratively, it's like the hidden springs of your personal life. It's just these springs that are within you that should be welling up. And, and, and a spring is a spring of purity, the artesian wells, that pure water. And that's what, that's what we should be mentally, emotionally, from the heart. So the pure in heart, those whose motives are absolutely unmixed, whose minds are utterly sincere. Who does that sound like? Well, it sounds like Jesus to me. Now, look, I get it. That's not an easy task for us. Right? It's easier for us to give into selfishness and unkindness. It's easier to go that road. But we can try. We can make that a goal in our life and a purpose in our life. That mountain was hard to climb. It was, if anybody could climb up El Capitan, everybody would be doing it. But it's only the ones that are willing to put the time and have the desire that can accomplish that. And if we have the desire and God blesses us with the time, we can carry out what he calls us to do and be as one of his disciples. I can work on being pure of heart. I can have my sins washed and I can continue to live in such a way as to demonstrate his holiness, his righteousness, not mine, his. Any righteousness I have is because of him. So the pure in heart arrives at this point because of what has transpired as he began to go down this journey, this path of discipleship. And once we've gone through this movement of realizing our spiritual state and mourning over that and humbling ourselves and hungering and thirsting, God bestowed upon us his grace, his mercy. We're in a state of being pure and heart, he says, and now actively be that way. We climb God's mountains of blessings, becoming a disciple. And as we live as a disciple, our conduct toward those around us demonstrate who we are. I tell you what, this group here, they're going to be different from the religious leaders of the time. You're going to know the difference between the two. You know, what's interesting about Jesus, even if you were to remove the miracles that Jesus was performing, the people still knew there was something different about him. He taught with authority. He spoke like none of their people had ever spoken before. You know, that's one of the things I cherish about most of the Church of Christ preachers that I've heard. People will visit from other groups and they'll say, man, our preachers don't preach like you guys. That says something to me. I take it as a compliment. Man, you, 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 you preach different. You're not just up there telling funny stories and, you know, showing some old, some old movies from Andy Griffith, you know, the, the Barney Fife videos of how to live morally. You, you actually have a Bible and you see, wow, that's amazing. Well, well, if I'm reading the scriptures correctly, that's what we're supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be emulating, imitating what it is that Jesus was doing. And if he had a pure heart and we know that he did, then I need to have one as well. So what is the blessed outcome then of 
being merciful, being pure in heart. God is the agent who will treat us mercifully. He's the one that does it. The future tense verb here, shall receive, is not in reference to the hereafter. And that's one of the things that we, as you go through this text, and at the, at the last lesson I have on Wednesday night, I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson, which, but it'll be interesting. I'll make it interesting. Um, how, these, how this is laid out in the Greek, how it goes from something that's passive to something that's active. And there's a difference between the two. The middle voice, what that means, and so forth. And in this case, it's God who's going to be merciful to you. You can't be merciful to yourself. This mercy only comes from God. That which requires mercy, the misery we have over sin, is removed. We no longer are in that state, right? That's a, that's a blessedness. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God will continue to be merciful to each one of us, all that choose to be one of his disciples. Look over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We're told that there was a time when we had not received mercy, Peter writes, but then there was a time that came when we did. He says, but according to his promises, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's not here. That's not here, right? So if we're looking at God being merciful to us, he's going to show us mercy. He's not showing, it's not about him, this future thing being in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because that's a place wherein righteousness dwells. And if righteousness dwells in heaven, in this new heavens, this new earth, we don't need mercy there. We need mercy wherein unrighteousness dwells. A place where we can still be tempted. So if I'm looking at this and I see this as a future tense, which it is, is he talking about he'll be merciful to you in heaven? Or is he talking about he's shown you mercy and he will continue to be merciful to you here? Well, if heaven is a place wherein righteousness dwells, then the mercy has to be something here that he will continue to show me. And this is a beautiful thing. This is one of those blessings on the mountain. We need continued mercy while we're here. In fact, look over in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then notice what he says here, the blood of Jesus does. The blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. That word cleanses is one that means continually does so. You see, the blood of Jesus started cleansing us when we were baptized into Christ. And the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us as we walk in the light. Have you ever had anybody tell you, well, okay, wait a minute now. You're telling me if I get baptized, then my sins are going to be washed away. Ah, now what happens if I go sin again? I got to get baptized again now, don't I? No, you don't. No, you don't because over 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, it says the blood of Jesus has a continual cleansing effect conditional upon walking in the light. Remaining a disciple of Christ. If we walk in the light, that's a conditional statement. 
So if we walk in the light, if I continue to be a disciple, then God's mercy is continually there for me in the blood of Jesus, cleansing me of my sin. Look what he says down here in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God will continue to be merciful to us if we are merciful. If we continue to live out and imitate him as one of his disciples. What is the blessing that we receive if we're pure in heart? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. He says, we'll see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Shall see God is a verb, future tense, middle voice. The middle voice isn't that God is going to make you see him, is that you actually are going to, you're going to be the one seeing him, which makes perfect sense. The grammatical voice signifies that the subject of the verb is being affected by its own actions or is acting upon itself. See, some of these things we see in there are in a passive voice. That means God's doing it to you. You will be comforted. That's passive, right? That's God is going to comfort you. But seeing God... The action is something that you're doing because of how you're living. You've made the choice to be a disciple. And so you will see God. Seeing God is a result of the actions taken by the one who seeks to be pure in heart. If I want to see God, I need to be pure in heart. And that's one of the blessings. I'm not going to be able to see God in the way that a disciple would if I choose not to be a disciple. Now, the question is, when are the pure in heart going to see God? Because this is also a future tense. There's a couple of different interpretations to this. Two possible conclusions. It's possible that what Jesus is saying is that we will see God in him. We cannot see God's general makeup, but we can see his definite personality. When you go over to the Gospel of John in John chapter 14, 6 through 9, he's telling the people... That if they've seen him, they've seen the father. So maybe that's what he's speaking of. That we'll be able to see God in him or see God the father in others. But it's also possible that he's talking about that future heavenly outcome. Jenny Petrillo states, whatever may be said regarding seeing God in his word by faith and regarding seeing him spiritually in communion with him in this life shall see God must here be in the other world promised to the glorified saints. Hey, I'm happy with either outcome. If the future tense is talking about us seeing God in Christ and in each other, seeing him being reflected as we're imitators of God, then I'm good with that. Because most assuredly, I'm still going to see God in heaven. And if it simply means I'm going to see God in heaven, then I'm good with that. Because the outcome is, I'm going to see God. As a disciple, I am going to see God. And not in a way where I'm going to be fearing and trembling in his presence. In a way that I will boldly stand before his throne. Not because of my own accord, but because of what Jesus has offered me in his blood. Not arrogant, but grateful and reverent because of what his son has done for me. So God calls us to be holy if we're going to stand in his presence. We must be pure of heart. And when we are, we can rely 
truly know that we will see God. You know, many people say after climbing some grand mountain that the experience was life-altering. You hear all these stories, people, oh, I'm going to climb up that mountain. And this, the, the work that went into it, and once I got to the top of that mountain, all that we had to go through, and then I looked out over that view, and man, I was changed. Kind of reminds me of when the astronauts went up into space. It was a Neil Armstrong, and he was talking about how he, when he looked back at the earth, how it changed his perspective of things. For one who's chosen the path of a disciple, the same can be said. But I think it can be said on a grander scale. The view from here is magnificent. What a glorious place we find ourselves as a disciple of Christ. We've abandoned a life of being spiritually destitute. We've mourned over that condition. We've humbled ourselves before the one who can save us, hungering and thirsting for his righteousness. We accepted his mercy, and so we become merciful to others, and we remain pure in heart. How different the view has now become. You see, we once stood on a mountain, but it was a mountain of rubbish. And the stench of sin was all around us. Nothing but garbage as far as we could see, living separate from God. Trying to make ourselves feel like we're happy and life is great, but always feeling empty and disappointed. But with God's mercy, we now stand on a mountain of blessings. And what a glorious sight to behold. We see God. We see God. I'm sure the view is spectacular when you climb up the Himalayas or Kilimanjaro or some other mountain out there. But how much more spectacular when you climb up the mountain of blessings that God offers us in His Son. Because you know the mountain that you climb... That trip you take up the Himalayas, you get up to the top of that mountain and you look around and you're like, this is so beautiful. Man, it's cold. Let's get back down. And then you get to the bottom of that mountain and you pack everything up and then you head home. And you're not on that mountain anymore. That mountain's in another country now. You're going out to the flatlands of Kansas. Ain't no mountains out there. How much more grander is it that when we climb this mountain of discipleship and the blessings that come from God, we always stand on that mountain. No matter where I go, I always have that view. I don't leave it behind. The blessings are always there with me. It's not a one-time trip that I take and say, well, I'll come back and see you later. It'll be a good memory. I've got photos I'll look at when I used to be on God's mountain of blessings. Oh, I remember that when I was so blessed. Yeah, oh, let's look at this one. I'm always there. Because God guarantees me that those blessings are mine if, if I will become one of his disciples. And I pray this night that you make that decision. Come up the mountain. Come up the mountain. Recognize your sinful state. Mourn over it. 
Humble yourself before God. Seek after, hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And he'll be merciful to you. And then live out being an imitator of God in your life. Be merciful to others. Show them what God has shown you. Be pure as he is pure. There's no better life than that. I had somebody tell me one time, you know, I tell you what, you know, James, if even if Jesus isn't the son of God, this is the best life. Now, don't get all excited here and say, amen. This is the best life you could choose. He said, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Because you see, Paul said that if Christ has not been resurrected from the dead, we are above all men most to be pitied. Because we're going up a mountain that has no blessings on it. It's only because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did that this life is worth living. So we encourage you, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, if you turn away from your sin and repentance, make that confession of Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, God will bestow upon you these blessings. And if we can encourage you to live faithful, to continue to see God, then let's help you do that. Whatever you need, come.